sitting back in October in Tom and Louise Whitaker's dining room with their small group um, and having a great time. And uh, Howard Wickersham did a devotion from the book of Nehemiah. And little did he know, probably one of my favorite Old Testament books is the book of Nehemiah. And it was kind of at that point that I thought to myself, you know what, I don't think I've ever done a sermon series on Nehemiah. As much as I love it and have taught it numerous times, uh, I don't really think that I've done a sermon series. So I thought to myself, self, we're doing a sermon series on Nehemiah starting the new year. And you might think it's a very interesting and weird place to start if you know anything about the book. Um, but I think it's a perfect place to start. Really, the entire uh, tenor and the entire message of Nehemiah is about a rebuilding effort. And, and here is what I understand, and I said this a lot at the end of last year, um, that as people get to the end uh, of a year and they start a new one, it's not like magic, like presto changeo, everything goes and resets and gets better again. No, guess what? The baggage you have in 2019 is probably the baggage that you carry into 2020. Uh, and so my, my idea is that there are probably a lot of us in this room uh, this morning who need a kind of a rebuild on our lives, a reset, if you will, all right? And again, it's not like there's a magic button you can do for that. But in some way, and Nehemiah's story is going to talk about the rebuilding of a physical wall around Jerusalem. But more importantly, I'm going to say this again later, is that he's really trying to build a people for God. And what's interesting about Nehemiah, and I don't have time, I wish I did, I wish I could just kind of do a whole sermon just strictly about the history and where Nehemiah falls and how we understand it in our biblical flow. Uh, but as you read your Bible, Nehemiah comes in a place in the Old Testament where you think to yourself like, oh, this is when this happened. Okay, so Nehemiah is the last historical book of the Old Testament. It's the last part of narrative that we get. When I say narrative, it just means that, that God is trying to tell a story, all right? And he's telling a story uh, like First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles and First and Second Samuel. Those are all historical books. They're just documenting and chronicling, uh, and, and specifically those books, the rise and the fall of kings in the nation of Israel. Nehemiah is a continuation of the historical books, and it is the last one in the entire Old Testament. Now, we would read it, and we say, well, Ryan, though, that there are a bunch of books that happen after Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Here's what we don't understand, is that most all of those books, all those books that follow are pro prophet books, prophetic books. Those are prophets that wrote during the time of Nehemiah, and so they're not writing years later. They're writing at the same time that Nehemiah is going through what he's going through, and so you have to kind of look at them together. They're happening simultaneously. And so that when Nehemiah ends, that's the end of the Old Testament. We understand that when the Old Testament ends, there really was a 400-year period. Now, this would be helpful, all right? I'm trying to get you to understand, because I, I was telling my Sunday school class this morning, I think we have a hard time kind of fitting in all the pieces of the Bible and where they go. We understand that when the Old Testament ends, there is a 400-year period where God is silent. There's nothing written. There's nothing spoken from the prophets at all. That will help you to understand and make sense because when Nehemiah was written, it was in about 440 BC. That means before Christ. Before Jesus comes onto this earth, Nehemiah is existing and he is writing his memoir, his recollections of what happened in Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah happens, his life ends, and then, like I said, there's this 400-year period of silence, and then Jesus is brought to this earth. 
That helps you to kind of wrap your mind around where are we in Old Testament history and how does it connect to New Testament history. Uh, really what happens with Nehemiah and the way that I see it and the way a lot of people see it is that Nehemiah is a book about new beginnings. All right, we're going to go back in and we are going to rebuild this wall because it's in shambles. Jerusalem is, is, should be ashamed of itself at this point. And then again, what really happens is, is, is God is trying to form a people, which I believe is really the, the start of the church way back 400 years before Jesus. He's forming this people. He's setting this up so that when Jesus comes on the scene, he's not just starting from scratch. Now, it looks like that to us when we go into the New Testament and we're like, Dude, this guy just came out of nowhere. Well, he really did. Like, he came from somewhere. All right, but he didn't just come and like, oh, I'm going to magically make everything happen from scratch. God was already preparing things way back 400 plus years in, in a man named Nehemiah and in a group of people that Nehemiah led that would make way for Jesus coming to this earth and to set things up. There we go. That was a pretty good wrap up, I thought there, of like Old Testament to New Testament history. All right. That wasn't all the Old Testament, but I want to ask you a question, though, as we get started for this morning. And we really, like I said, why I want to do Nehemiah is we left last year. If you remember in September, we had Vision Sunday, and we talked about that we want to be disciples who are making disciples. And I really don't know of any Old Testament book that does a better job of, of looking at what it means to be a disciple and to make disciples and to lead out. And again, one of our phrases that we say around here is that we want to be people who are seeking Christ and seeking to make him known. And that we want to win people for Christ and we want to build people up in Christ. We want to equip them to serve in Christ. And then we want to multiply disciples who will make more disciples and make more disciples. Guys, that's how the kingdom grows and that's how it builds. So that's why we're starting in Nehemiah. We're going to talk about some of those things over the course of the next few weeks. But I want to ask you this question this morning. Have you ever had like a really horrible, terrible job? <laughs> you go, yes. Like, okay, I'm not going to ask this question. Like if you're in that job right now, we're not going to go there. All right. Because I don't know who employs who and who works with who. And that could get really messy really quick. Now, I always catch job descriptions and just catch me off guard. Sometimes you run across a job description or a, a help wanted ad that is so bizarre it causes you to do a double take. And such is the case for these next few uh, help wanted ads or job descriptions that I'm going to put up here. I hope you can read this. Uh, this one evidently is a toy store because it's called Toy with Toys with a Z because that's really hip and trendy, right? All right. It says, we are hiring. Low pay, bad hours, jerk boss. Apply now. Who wouldn't want that job, right? Here's what I think. And this one is like, at least they're being honest, right? Like, you know what you're going into before you get there. Jerk boss, all right? How about the next one? You may not be able to read this one. And it's not about the busy Italian restaurant. It's about the Subway ad that's underneath of it. it says, come to work for Subway restaurants and have your dreams crushed like the rest of us. Like, who signs up for that? Who wants to go do that? Next one. This one really cracks me up. Surgeon wanted for a new health clinic opening in the area. No experience is really needed. And you must have your own tools. <laughs> uh, not going there. All right. Uh, next one. This is a great one. Wanted someone to grind or chew hay for a horse with bad teeth. Like, I wish that I could find these help wanted ads. I love the guy's name, James Bud Williams, all right? Just sounds very cowboy to me. Next one, I like this too. Wanted, grape stompers, 
must have good balance and large feet. Down at the bottom it says, skinny folk need not apply <laughs> to that job. <laughs> Sorry, you're not going to be a great grape stomper if you're just a skinny mini, all right? And the next one, it's a pretty serious one. Uh, it says, men, men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. Do you see the name down there at the very bottom of that help wanted ad? Ernest Shackleton. Now, most people believe that this is not a real true ad that was put in the paper. Many people have tried to track it down over history, uh, but they say that Shackleton probably did not need to put an ad in the paper. In fact, uh, he set up offices to go on his expedition to the South Pole, and he says he was so overrun with people coming to the... Like, even though that may not be a real article, that really is what an expedition to the South Pole was like. Hazardous. Like, no pay at all. Like, you probably aren't coming back from this. And it said that his offices for this expedition were so overrun with men that stepped up and said, I want to go, and I want to do that. And for most of those job descriptions, there is no explanation needed. They're just bad, guys. That's bad. Who wants to run to things like that? A grape stomper. A surgeon who provides his own tools. Yeah, that seems on the up and up to me. But it was a job description of that Ernest Shackleton ad that really caught my attention. And in much the same way, guys, the story that we're going to talk about, not just this morning, but the story we're going to talk about over the next several weeks, involved its fair share of, of disappointment and dejection. It was hard. It was confusing. It was treacherous. And the person we're going to focus on that stands at the center of this story is one of the most unlikely characters you will ever meet. Nehemiah, we only know Nehemiah because he has a book in the Bible named after him. He tells a story. But if we were probably to run across Nehemiah on the path to Jerusalem, we'd be like, I don't know who this guy is. There's nothing special about Nehemiah. What he's tasked with doing is one of the least desirable jobs that you could ever possibly imagine. Truth be told, guys, it would give Ernest Shackleton's South Pole Expedition a run for its money. You guys remember, I don't think it's on TV anymore. I think he has a different show, but Mike Rowe had this show for years called Messy Jobs. Dirty Jobs, sorry. Messy Jobs, Dirty Jobs, same thing. Dirty Jobs. And I used to watch that and I think to myself, like, why is this guy doing this? This is so silly. He doesn't have to do this. There's, no, there's nothing compelled him other than a large amount of money that probably made per episode. But other than that, nothing that compelled this guy to be like, I want to go in and I want to scoop horse poop all day long. Just because. Just because I want to make a show about it. I think about that when I think about Nehemiah. He stepped into a dirty, messy, nasty job that he really, honestly, we're going to talk about this in here in just a minute, he really didn't have to do this. There was nothing about his position in life that said, oh, I need to go and I need to rescue Jerusalem. So the question I want to kind of establish here is, who is Nehemiah, though? I mean, what is the task that he is being called to undertake? And to begin answering that, if you have your Bibles with you, Nehemiah chapter 1. If you don't have your Bibles, the scripture will be up here on the screen. You're welcome to grab a Bible that's in the rack there in front of you, or you can catch it on your digital device. Nehemiah chapter 1, we're going to read the entire chapter. Don't worry, it's only 11 verses. It's not like it's going to go on forever. It says this, These are the memoirs, or the recollections, of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. I wish I had a cool name like Nehemiah, and my dad's name was Hakaliah. 
because that'd be cool. I'd be like, hey, I'm Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. I mean, just like you're, it sounds like you're hacking all over the place, but whatever. Total aside, in the late autumn, in the month of Kislev, which we would understand that to be probably about November or December is where we're at in the story here. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, I was at the fortress of Susa. Susa was the winter palace for the Persian Empire. It says, Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. And they said to me, things are not going well. Have you ever done that before? Like you walk by somebody, this is how we do things. Like, hey, how's it going today? And somebody goes, it's horrible. It's junk. Nobody ever does that, do they? Unless they know you really, really well. Most of the time it's like, things are going wonderful. Couldn't complain. We do that kind of stuff. So this is kind of like a moment here where Nehemiah says to his brother, Hanani, he says, how are things going? Junk is what he says. Things are not going well. For those who return to the province of Judah, they are in great trouble and they are in disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem have been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And it says, when I heard this, I sat down and I wept. Now guys, we probably wouldn't understand this because when we think of weeping, we'd be like, tear. Like weeping is not like just a little tear that forms in the corner of your eye. Nehemiah sits down and he uncontrollably cries and sobs. Like this is, if you've been, they talk about this, like when you go to a movie, like girls go to a movie and it's like this romantic movie and this, and like something happens and they say that they ugly cry. Like they're just uncontrollable, just like mascara is running. Not that Nehemiah was doing that, but like this is what I, I, I imagine at this point, Nehemiah is ugly crying. And he's doing this, not in Jerusalem, he's doing this in Persia. And we're going to find out why this is so important and why this is so unusual, because he has a really important place in the Persian Empire. But he is ugly crying, and it says he mourned, and he fasted, and he prayed to God of heaven for days. He doesn't just do this one time, a one-off. He does this for days, weeping and fasting and praying. And then I said, he says here in verse 5, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands. Listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. What he's doing here is he's appealing back to, to the law of Moses. And when Moses brings the people out of uh, Egypt and he's starting to bring them into the promised land. He sits them down and he said, boys and girls, here's the deal. Like we are going to have to listen to God and we are going to have to follow God. And guess what? If we do not, there will be some consequences to it. If you do not listen to God and you do not follow God, you will be cursed by God and you will not make it in the promised land. And guess what happens? It bears itself off. An entire, it bears itself out. An entire generation dies off and doesn't see the promised land. So that's what Nehemiah is referring back to here. He says in verse 8, Please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. That's what they're living in right there, here at this moment in Nehemiah. Jerusalem and all Israel has been scattered. They've been put into exile. And they're being brought back to Jerusalem. He says, But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. 
the people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants? Oh Lord, please hear my prayer. Second time he said this. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Really, the translation is there is, please be favorable to me and make me favorable to the king. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. And you think to yourself, like, why in the world is he talking about the king of Persia? I don't get it. Why would the king be favorable to you? Verse 11 is so important. It's probably the most overlooked verse in this entire section. Because this tells us where Nehemiah is and and why he says this. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. I mean, the situation that Nehemiah is thrust into looks like a no-win situation, doesn't it? Right? I mean, on the surface, it doesn't look like there's much of a chance of experiencing anything in the way of success. But Nehemiah is like so many people of more recent history who seem to have an uncanny ability to push through even when the odds seem stacked against them. Let me take a visit through history here and talk to you about some people through history. Walt Disney is one of them. Did you know that Walt Disney was fired by a newspaper editor for a lack of ideas? That one's comical to me. Disney himself, you got a lack of ideas, boy, all right? And he actually went bankrupt several times before he built Disneyland. How about Babe Ruth? Babe Ruth is well known for setting the home run record that stood for nearly 40 years. That's phenomenal, guys. But did you know that he also holds the record for strikeouts? What about old Elvis, King of Rock? In 1954, the manager of the Grand Ole Opry fired Elvis after just one performance, and he said this to them, you ain't going nowhere, son, so you ought to go back to driving a truck. Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison conducted 2,000 experiments before he developed the right filament for the light bulb. And when someone asked him what it felt like to fail so many times, he replied, I never failed once inventing the light bulb. I just have, it just happened to be a 2,000-step process, is what he said. I love that. Beethoven was completely deaf by 45 years old, and yet he went on to compose his greatest works after that, including five symphonies. Like, some of you can't even pour your bowl of cereal right in the morning. This dude was, <laughs> this dude was composing symphonies when he was completely deaf. Jonas Salk, some of you don't know that name, Jonas Salk, It's a big name in medical history. He was the person who developed the vaccine for polio. He had 200 unsuccessful vaccines before he came up with one that worked. And Salk's response to so many setbacks and failures, he said, I never failed 200 times at anything in my life. In fact, he says, my family taught me to never use that word failure. He says, I simply found 200 ways not to make a polio vaccine. Guys, all of these men including Nehemiah, have one thing in common. They have an uncanny ability to endure vast amounts of heartbreak, adversity, failure, opposition, ridicule. All of them went through that. Nehemiah is going to go through that over the next several weeks as we tell this story. And the question I ask myself as I look at people like Disney and and Beethoven and Jonas Salk is like, what in the world gave them the resolve to press on despite those difficulties, despite those setbacks in life? I don't know if we'll ever know completely the answer to that question, but 
I believe, and I think that we know that if we had just like a smidgen, like an ounce of their determination, we could save ourselves from an untold amount of stress and discouragement in life. For most of us, and, and probably like a high majority of us in this room, when things get really tough in life, we just shut down. We just give up. We just throw in the towel. And the recollections of Nehemiah that he gives us here, we read just one part of that recollection. It shows us how to keep going even when we feel like giving up. And, and Nehemiah sort of reminds me of the little engine that could. Anybody ever read that story growing up? Just chugging along, the little engine. You remember the story, right? All right. Just in, in, in a short form, here is the little engine that could. The little train is chugging along, carrying all kinds of toys and goodies for the kiddos. But suddenly, without warning, the train engine stops and cannot go another inch, no matter how hard that little engine tries. And so in a frantic moment, all of the toys and all of the stuffed animals try to enlist the help of several other engines that come down the track. First, there's the shiny new engine. But the shiny new engine just snorts and says, I'm a passenger engine. I have just carried a big fine train over the mountain with more cars than you've ever dreamed of. Carry the likes of you, I think not. And next down the track came the big engine. Please, oh please, big engine, do pull our train over the mountain. To which the big engine replied, I'm a freight engine. I have just pulled a big train loaded with costly machines over the mountain. I am a very important engine indeed. I won't carry the likes of you. Saddened, all the toys and all the stuffed animals start to lose hope. But another engine was making its way down the track. Surely this would be the one who could pull the train over the mountain to deliver all the goods to the little boys and girls. But alas, the kind engine replied, I'm so tired. I must rest my weary wheels. I can't even pull so little a train as yours over the mountain. I cannot. I cannot. I cannot. Guys, all hope seemed lost at this point in the book. For the little train and all the toys and the animals. But coming down the tracks came a little blue engine. A very little one to which the clown said, maybe he can help us. And when the toys appeal to the little blue engine, at first his responses sound like all the others, don't they? I'm not very big. I mean, they only use me for switching trains in the train yard. I've never even been over the mountain before. And as most of us know, the little blue engine utters the most famous words of the book, right? I think I can. It's that mantra that keeps the little blue engine chugging and puffing until he pulls the train over the mountain and delivers all the toys to the boys and the girls on the other side. But as I read that story and I think about that story, it sounds an awful lot like our central character, Nehemiah, doesn't it? In, in fact, the big idea of Nehemiah really is determination. Like if you want to walk away after four weeks and be like, what the world's the book of Nehemiah about? What the world did he just say for four weeks? Determination. But guys, I'm not talking about a determination like the little engine that could, a, a self-determination, that if I just try a little bit harder, I just pull myself up by my bootstraps and give all of my energy, I think I can. What Nehemiah is really about is a divine, God-supplied determination. 
And really what Nehemiah starts to show us, even here in chapter 1, is that because God is so committed to seeing his plan through, it gives Nehemiah and it gives us hope. It gives us courage. It gives us determination that we can thrive. That we can thrive even in the most frustrating and hopeless of circumstances. And again, I don't know about you guys. I don't know about your life. I know my life only, but I know as I look out in the world today, there's a lot of hopelessness, isn't there? A, a, a lot of, I'm just stuck in my situation and there's nothing that I can do about it. In all truth, though, guys, even though we would be tempted to say Nehemiah is the center of the story, that Nehemiah is in the spotlight, this is his book, he writes this story, he in some ways is on the center part of the stage. Here's the thing that I want you to recognize, not only about Nehemiah, but so many people in the Bible. Nehemiah accomplished great things for his people because he asked and he expected great things of a great God, and then he relied on that great God. Do you know who the central character, do you know who the central person is in the story of Nehemiah in the book of Nehemiah? God. You know who the central character and the central part of the story is in every single book of the Bible? God. It's about people who would follow after God and give themselves to something great, saying, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to do this. I don't know why you chose me, but I'm going to trust you, God. I'm going to rely on you because you are great. In fact, what does he say there at the very beginning of this prayer? Oh, Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God. I mean, that's a pretty good way to start a prayer, right? Like, it's you, God. It's you we adore. It's you that we follow after. It's you that we come after in this life. Nehemiah would have been a nothing if it hadn't been for God and for God's strength and God's awesomeness. And guys, this is what we need to do, and this is why we need to keep in check as we read the beginning part of the story and we work through the story of Nehemiah. There is a way to look at the Bible and to look at people in the Bible that is beneficial and it's encouraging to us. We look at people like Nehemiah and are like, why would I not want to be like Nehemiah? I want to take his character traits and I want them to be a part of my life. Or we discard things that we see in people in the Bible that are not God-honoring to us. But I think what we often do is we look at people in the Bible in a very idyllic sense. Like we put them on a pedestal like, oh, Nehemiah. I could never be a Nehemiah. I mean, we tend to look at people in the Bible as if they are extraordinary, otherworldly heroes. I kind of almost think that we sometimes look like we live in like the, the Marvel age, right? Like every movie that's coming out now is about, the, about Marvel or in the recent past about the Avengers, all right? I think we kind of get stuck in that. We start to look at people in the Bible and we're like, oh man, they're like, they're like a Marvel character. I mean, what, we do, what we do is we look at them like you would a Michael Jordan in basketball. I mean, Michael Jordan was so other than anybody that played even basketball back in the 80s and the 90s. He transcended the sport of basketball. And it doesn't matter, I was telling my Sunday school class, it doesn't matter how many times I would go out there in my driveway as a Chicago Bulls fan, as a Jordan fan, and I was doing like all my moves and hanging my tongue out. And like, it didn't matter how many shots I took, I was never going to be Jordan. It didn't matter how many times I worked on my calves and my leg muscles and I jumped and I jumped and I jumped. Guess what I never, ever did in my life to this very day? I never dunked that ball. I never even got close to dunking that ball. 
I think that's what we do with people in the Bible is we look at them and we're like, oh, they're like Jordan. They're like a Marvel character. I couldn't do that. It's not true, guys. It really damages the power and it damages the prestige of God and His ability to do amazing things with very ordinary people. That's really what the message of the Bible is in so many ways. The Bible is simply filled with ordinary people. And here's the thing, if you really pay attention close enough and you read through this and you look at these people in the Bible, guess what? They're us. Every single person, I don't care, Moses, us. Abraham, us. Samson, me. Not so much you. Just kidding. I was telling somebody before service that the, um, he said, I forgot to bring my pistol today. I said, that's all right. I always, I always carry my water pistols on me because that's what Crystal calls my muscles. They're just water pistols. Whatever. An aside there. Back to the original story. Guys, these people in the Bible are us with the exception of one person. Like, we ain't Jesus. We're no savior. Other than that, every other person is just your average, ordinary, everyday person who God said, I want to use you. And they said, please do. Same holds true for Nehemiah. God's great glory is seen in who he uses. Very ordinary men and women. God extraordinarily and supernaturally works through ordinary men and women. And guess what, guys? Nothing has changed today. Nothing has changed 2,400, 2,500 years later. He still works through very average and ordinary people, if you will let him. So what's going on in Jerusalem? Who is Nehemiah? Why in the world does any of this, some of you are sitting there going, like, dude, I'm hearing you, but this is like, like where we are today, we're like 2,500 years past this point. Why do we care what happens in Nehemiah? And I could give a large history lesson on why Jerusalem finds itself in the mess that it's in, but I don't have time to do that. And verse 3 actually does a really good job for me of telling, me, telling you exactly what's happening in Jerusalem. I want to read it again. Things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and they are in disgrace. They are a shame. The walls of Jerusalem have been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. Now again, that probably doesn't mean a great deal to us, but to those in Jerusalem around 440 BC, walls meant a great deal to people in that day. Walls in those day, days were a city's primary means of defense, and, and keeping them and the city gates in good repair was a tremendously big deal. To understand just how formidable such walls can be, take for example the walls that surrounded the, the ancient city of Babylon. As recounted by the Greek historian Herodotus, he says this when he looked at Babylon and he, and he recounted it. He said some of the walls were 100 feet high. That's impressive, but listen to this. He also said that the walls were 300 feet thick. Like, do you get that? 300 feet thick. Now, I was explaining to my Sunday school class a few weeks ago that often when we think of a wall, we just think of a single wall. Like, we just look at walls and we're like, how in the world could something be 300, thick, 300 feet thick? What they often did back in that day is when they built an outer wall, and then they had dirt that was in between it, and then they had an inner wall too. So they're counting all of that. But could you imagine that? The thickness of 300 feet for a wall. And it said that it was also guarded by over 200 watchtowers. 
Like you walked up to Babylon and you thought, nope, not messing with that city, let's go on to the next one. There is no person in their right mind who does that. But I don't want you to miss this. I've already said this, but this is a really big deal about Nehemiah. The walls are not just a problem physically as far as defense is concerned here in Jerusalem. The ruined walls of Jerusalem are symbolic of a relationship that is in ruins. It was a symptom of a break in the relationship between the people and God. And as we read the story over the next few weeks, it's not just going to be a story of physical rebuilding, but a spiritual rebuilding as well, a rebuilding of people. As one writer puts it, Nehemiah is regarded as the wall builder in Jerusalem, and this is a theme that resonates in the book. But his story is not only about building the physical walls of Jerusalem for physical protection. It is also a story of building spiritual walls around the people with the word of God and thus building up the people as well. And the question that begs to be asked all the way through the book of Nehemiah, and this is really why they find themselves in this situation, is just one single question. Does anybody really care? And as we open up Nehemiah, we look at ourselves and we look at what's going on there, and we think to ourselves, obviously nobody really cares. You see, Nehemiah wasn't the first one into Jerusalem. He's actually the third wave of people who are being relocated and put back into Jerusalem. If you remember Ezra, Ezra is the book right before Nehemiah. Ezra goes there 13 years before Nehemiah. He goes to set back the law in order. There was a man before Ezra. His name was Zerubbabel. All right, that's a great, really strong name too. He went back to rebuild the temple. Nehemiah is just the third wave. And you think to yourself, why in the world is nobody doing anything? Does anybody care about Jerusalem? Does anybody care about God's people? In George Bernard Shaw's play, The Devil's Disciple, one of the characters says this. This line jumped out at me and has stuck with me all week. It says, the worst sin toward our fellow creatures is not to hate them, but to be indifferent toward them. That is the essence of inhumanity. The people of God find themselves in the position they are largely because they don't care. Here's what I probably believe in a room with this many people in it. Is that there are some of you that are sitting there this morning and you're thinking the very same thing. I don't care. I don't care what this guy is saying. I don't care what this crusty old book right here has to say to me. I don't care about any of this God mumbo-jumbo stuff that you're talking about. And that's what's happening in Jerusalem. They are apathetic and they are indifferent towards the goodness of God and his desire for them to be faithful towards them. And then there was Nehemiah. Nehemiah was the kind of person who cared. He cared about the glory of the past. He cared about, cared about the needs of the present. He cared about all the hopes for the future. And here's what's really striking to me, and I've already said this once, is he didn't have to care. It's actually highly likely that Nehemiah has never even been to Jerusalem. How hard is it to care about a place that you've never even been to? He probably doesn't know any of these people who have resettled to Jerusalem. Maybe a few of them, but not on the large part, most of them. How hard is it to care for people that you don't even know? You, you see, his, his great-grandparents were those who were shipped out in 587 to Babylon in the very first place. All Nehemiah has ever known is a life in Babylon. 
Furthermore, as we find out in verse 11, that's why it said it's so incredibly important. Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king. And guys, that's no small task. With that position as cupbearer to the king came immense responsibility, enormous prestige, unparalleled access to the king. Like you don't mess that job up. And, and, and on top of that, he is 800 miles away from Jerusalem. There's no, they're not even in close proximity to Jerusalem. What reason does Nehemiah have to care? His role as cupbearer is to sample the wine and the food of the king to make sure it's not poison. He is in a palace living in luxury, drinking the best wine on earth. There's no television to update him. There's no social media for him to scroll through to see all the pictures of his people suffering. Yet at the news of the state of his people, most of whom he had never met, he wept. And he mourned. Why? Why does he care so much. And I think that there are four things that are revealed in just these 11 verses that tell us a whole lot about Nehemiah. First off, guys, he cares enough to ask. Verse 3, what does it say there? Or in verse 2, actually, it says, I asked my brother and I asked those who came with my brother about what was going on in Jerusalem. Here's what I understand about life, and here's what I understand sometimes about even me. Guys, guess what? Some people prefer not to know what's going on. Now, I operate sometimes that in my life, like, oh gosh, we're so overwhelmed with all kinds of stuff going on in the world, and sometimes I'm just like, stop, like, just, just don't tell me. That's why I don't watch a lot of TV, that's why I don't watch a lot of news, because I'm just like, I'm overwhelmed, I don't want to know. Nehemiah is the opposite, he says, I, I, I want to know. He asks, what's happening? Because what happens is, with information comes obligation. When you know something, you're obligated to do something about it. And guess what happens when you don't do anything about it? It just eats at you, doesn't it? You're like, I'm a horrible person. I know this and I'm not doing anything about it. And what's the popular saying, guys? I mean, like old, old saying, what you don't know won't hurt you. In fact, Mark Twain once wrote, all you need in life is ignorance and confidence. The rest is just success. But guys, what we don't know could actually end up hurting us in the end. Nehemiah asked about Jerusalem and about the people of Jerusalem because he genuinely and deeply cared. Even though he had never been to Jerusalem, he, he never forgot Jerusalem. It was a part of all Jewish people. And when we truly have a heart like God and we truly care about people, we want facts. We want to do something. We want to know what's going on, no matter how painful that news might be. American historian Henry Adams once said, practicality consists in ignoring the facts. But writer Aldous Huxley countered that with these words, facts do not cease to exist because they are ignored. Guys, it doesn't matter how much we sit in life and be like, I don't care. I don't really want to know about that. Do you know what never stops? everything around us that's wrong. Everything around us is out of order. Closing our eyes and our ears to the truth is often the first step towards apathy and tragedy. Why does Nehemiah care? And I think it's because of this, and it's, it's, it's ingrained in what's going on here in chapter one. He, he cares because he knows scripture. He knows God's word really well, and he knows that God cares an awful lot. You see, it's God's expectation that we would be people moved by sorrow. We would be moved by loss. And the fact that things aren't as they should be. Guys, we are, we, are, we are men and women. We are people who should enter the fray, not run away from it. 
The church should be the place where rebuilding starts. We don't avoid things because, guess what, someone else will do it. Why should it be me anyways? Guys, we have been shown mercy, so it's God's expectation that we extend mercy. We go out of our way to care. I had a whole list of scriptures here I was going to read, but I don't have time to read them. But go just look at scripture. It's all over the place about a God who cares who wants us to give of ourselves, who wants us to care enough to enter into things, to share people's sorrows, to weep when people weep, to give of ourselves, to give of our things. Because guess what? That's the heart of Christ. And the question I often wonder is, are we like Nehemiah? Are we anxious to know the truth even about the worst situations? Do we want to know the facts? Do the facts burden us? Are we the kind of people who care enough to ask. Nehemiah cared. And, and, and often, guys, that's the first step to knock us out of our comfort zone and our areas of complacency and apathy. He cared enough to ask. But he also cared enough to weep. Guys, when God puts something on your heart, don't, don't try to escape it. Don't try to ignore it. Because if you do, you may miss the blessing that he has planned for you and, and he's planned to do through you. The book of Nehemiah, and we don't, we're not going to have time to work all the way through Nehemiah. It's 13 chapters. We're really only going to deal with the first four chapters over the next few weeks. But Nehemiah starts in destruction, but it ends in celebration. Not only does Nehemiah care enough to ask and he cares enough to weep, he cares enough to pray. In fact, prayer is the foundation for Nehemiah's entire mission for the book. It's, it's the private prayer of Nehemiah here in, in chapter 1. Next week we're going to talk about chapter 2 and he goes public. He talks to the king. And it's the private prayer of Nehemiah that leads to his public power before the king. And the way that Nehemiah looks at and engages in prayer is exactly how we should be moved to pray. I think sometimes we really misunderstand prayer and what it is. Nehemiah recognizes, we should recognize that prayer is just asking God to do what he has already promised to do. That's why we ask for silly things like Lamborghinis and like millions of dollars. It didn't happen. Because guess what? God has not promised to give you that. God has promised to give you a whole load of things, but those aren't one of them. Nehemiah didn't just launch into some half-baked, half-hearted plan. He sought the Lord in prayer in his moment of need and distress. This prayer here in verses 5 through 11 is the first of 12 instances in the book of Nehemiah of him praying, falling before the Lord. And what the prayer includes is very important. It really includes two things. Number one, the greatness of God. Oh God, Lord of heaven, great and awesome God. It starts there. It always has to start there in our prayers, in our praise towards God. But something else happens in the prayer. It goes from the greatness of God to the grossness of man. What does Nehemiah do? We have a, such a hard time with this. Nehemiah starts in the prayer and he says, God, you are awesome, far above everything. Me? I confess that I'm a sinner. We confess that we're a sinner, he says, for people of Jerusalem. And he doesn't just put it on everybody else in Jerusalem. He says, my family, me and my family are just as guilty. We have wronged you, God. Too often we plan our projects and then ask God to bless them, but Nehemiah didn't make that mistake. He sat down and he wept and he kneeled down and he prayed and then he stood up and he worked because he knew he had the blessing of God on what he was doing. 
This last part here, this last thing that he cares enough to do, I think is probably one of the most important. Even more important than praying, even more important than asking. And the last one is that Nehemiah cares enough to act, to do something. Guys, all of our wishes and all of our hopes and all of our dreams and all of our prayers and all of our, oh, I thought about doing that, doesn't mean a single thing if we don't eventually act, do something. Nehemiah was unswerving and unwavering in his prayer. He says, For days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed, Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Nehemiah offered this prayer day after day after day over a period of months. We're going to find out next week that Nehemiah really doesn't do anything until the next spring. He doesn't even go to the king until the next spring. So you can imagine Nehemiah every single day prays this one prayer every day. Give me the opportunity for the mission. Give me the means for that mission. It's often been said that prayer is not getting man's will done in heaven, but it's getting God's will done on earth. Guys, for that to happen though, people have to be available to him. People have to be available for God to use. This is scripture, guys. God does exceedingly, abundantly above all that we ask or think. And then this is what it says in Ephesians. According to the power that works in us. It doesn't say that God just magically works on his own and sprinkles pixie dust on things and it just happens. Do you understand this? I want you to hear this. Do you know how God works and who God works through? You, me, the church. That's scary, but it's also very motivating and inspiring. Nehemiah planned to volunteer to go to Jerusalem to supervise the rebuilding of the walls. He didn't pray that God would just send somebody else. Nor did he argue, I'm just, I can't do this. He simply said, here am I, send me. And he had to sacrifice a ton of things in the process. He was the king's cupbearer. He would have to leave behind the ease of the palace and take up the toils of encouraging a beaten and a broken people and finishing an almost impossible task. And every bit of what Nehemiah does takes place first and foremost because he took the time to care. And here is what I want for you in this new year. Dan talked a little earlier about resolutions, and I think resolutions are poo-poo, but whatever. Do it if you want. Like if you want to resolve to do something, how about you shift your life from apathy to empathy? Shift it from apathy to action, to actually doing something. Again, such a big part of what we're doing at the beginning of this year and all throughout the year is what in the world does it really and truly mean to look like a disciple of Jesus Christ? I I can tell you this. One thing it does not look like is this. It doesn't doesn't look like that at all. Guys, it's going to involve us caring about things. It's going to involve us caring about the mission of God, caring about the mission of this specific church, New Heights Christian Church, and doing something about it. There's no good to walk into a church every single Sunday and just plop your rumps on those pews and then just go out of here. That was good. Didn't know that song. Didn't know any of the songs, but, you know, whatever. 
doesn't do any good. We have to do something. We would move our lives from frustration and destruction and irritation to inspiration. Guys, I know it's tough. I know that life is tough. And I'm not just sitting up here saying this as some guy like, oh, he's a preacher, he's got to say stuff like that. No. Like the end of my 2019 was hard. And it was difficult. And you ask Brenda and you ask Levi, I was a crank. But guess what? It's not just because it's a new year. It's not just because it's 2020. Every single moment of every single day, we have an opportunity to look and be like, not going to hold me down. There were a million and one things that could have held Nehemiah down in his story. But every step of the way, he said, I think I can. I think I can. I know I can. Because we have a great God that we serve. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that we would understand that every single day of our lives, not just from the end of one year to the beginning of the next, Lord, that you are a great and mighty and awesome God. There is nothing that you cannot handle. Whereas we are weak and we are frail, you make us whole. Where we stumble and fall, you pick us back up. Where we can't see the way you've already made the way. And so I pray, Lord, we would step into that. I pray if there's somebody here this morning, Lord, who has never known that, never known the truth of that, never lived that on their lives, they would begin to do that today. If there's someone here, there's some ones here who have never placed their faith in you and taken you as their Lord and Savior and allowed you to guide their lives, Lord, that they would do that today. That today is a day of making a choice for you. I pray that we would do that not just in the first Sunday of a new year, but we would do that every, not just Sunday, but every single day this year. 365 days of looking to you and knowing, Lord, that you are great and you are awesome and you are powerful and nothing can stand in your way. And as we do that, Lord, we move from inaction to being a powerful instrument in your hands for the gospel and for the growth of your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.